On this week's 51%, we continue our conversations with the Cary Institute's Logan Nonfiction Fellows. Documentarian Sanabi Spoonhunter previews her upcoming film, Holder of the Sky, and journalists Jillian Farmer and Cheryl Upshaw discuss their in-progress podcast, 50-Foot Woman, about the rare disease acromegaly. It's not every day that a dermatologist gets to diagnose a brain tumor and a very rare disease, but she saved my life. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. This week, we're continuing our conversations with some of this fall's Logan Nonfiction Fellows at the Cary Institute for Global Good. The program is currently remote for the coronavirus pandemic, so unfortunately, fellows aren't getting their usual retreat at the Cary Institute's campus in Rensselaerville, New York. But its writers, filmmakers, podcasters, and photographers are still developing their projects and swapping advice through various online seminars and workshops. Sanabi Spoonhunter spoke with me from Montana while filming her upcoming documentary, Holder of the Sky. Spoon Hunter is an American Indian reporter and filmmaker and citizen of the Northern Arapaho tribe. Much of her storytelling focuses on Indian country, including her latest documentary short, Crow Country, Our Right to Food Sovereignty, which has been screening at various festivals and venues. As she heads into the Logan nonfiction program, though, her focus is on Holder of the Sky. So Holder of the Sky chronicles several tribes in the state of Wisconsin and their struggle to retain their treaty rights that were made with the government back in the 1800s and how those treaty rights are still being challenged today and what that looks like in present day. I focus on the Lac du Flambeau up in northern Wisconsin, the Oneida Nation, which is just outside of Green Bay, and then the Menominee tribe. Just for those who don't know, what are some examples of the treaty rights that you're examining in the film? Like, what do treaty rights usually entail? Yeah, so a treaty right is a binding agreement between two sovereign nations. And so when the U.S. government started relocating tribes to reservations, that affected tribal life, their daily life. Tribes weren't able to go and access their traditional homelands for food or any of the things that they did. And so with those agreements, tribes were able to negotiate. If I go onto a reservation, I'll be able to go off the reservation to hunt and fish anywhere that I want. That is an example of one of the tribes in Wisconsin that we're following. Um, And then, you know, people, it was an uprising known as the walleye wars. And this is just one example in the film. Tribal members did that. They went off the reservation and were hunting using a spearfishing tradition. And you know, local non-tribal folks got really upset because they felt that tribes were given a sort of privilege, that they were given more privilege than any other U.S. citizen without really understanding the treaty rights and what tribes sacrificed in order to obtain that right to spearfish. I think that's a good example to highlight, you know, about treaty rights surrounding the United States. And it plays out present day. We're following one character who was recently shot at last spring while he was spearfishing. So most of the tribes you're looking at are in Wisconsin. So what brings you to Montana? So um, there's actually a national organization. 
it's evolved over time, but that event that I described earlier about the spearfishing, there was an organization called PAR, but today it evolved and it's called the Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance. And it's basically a group that challenges the rights of tribes. And so one of the leaders of that organization lives here in Montana. She was challenging the rights of another tribe that we're following in Wisconsin. Holder of the Sky is basically, um, I found that title, Holder of the Sky, from a creation story of the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. And the Oneida Nation is probably one of the most powerful nations in the country. They were originally from New York. They were moved to Wisconsin by treaty. And so they were given um, certain acreage of land. Later on, after that treaty, a non-Native community wanted to establish a town on that land. And the tribe resisted and they were like, no, we do not want a town here. This is our treaty land, you know, and the state said, no, that's fine. They could start a town on, the, on that land. And so ever since then, there's always been some kind of strife between the two communities. But as of recently, it's gotten even worse over jurisdiction. The two communities are the Oneida Nation and the village of Hobart. And the village of Hobart is home to a lot of Green Bay Packers. And so it's a pretty wealthy um, suburb outside of Green Bay and they're trying to expand on the tribal land. And the tribe is like saying, no, this is our land. Like we want to keep our land. But then Hobart's saying, no, we were trying to buy land to you know, expand. Elaine Willman is part of the Center for Equal Rights Alliance, which is the group that I had mentioned earlier that challenges the rights of tribes across the country. And so she was flown in to help with a jurisdictional issue that was happening between Oneida and Hobart. And so she's just a very interesting character. And um, yeah, so we're here filming with her in Montana now, and uh, she's actually doing some work against the Flathead Indian Reservation, but that's another <laughs> subject. But um, she lives here now, but she's still heavily involved with Oneida and Hobart relations. I guess just tell me a little more about what's going on here from both sides. Like, what argument is the village of Hobart making to say that they should be allowed to expand? Because to me, obviously, I don't know a lot about the situation, but it looks like it should be pretty cut and dry. Like, there's an agreement giving this land to the Oneida Nation, so it is theirs, right? Yeah, that's that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And that's one I'm hoping to answer in the film, because when you look at it and you learn about it, it's like this makes sense, like why are they resisting this, right? And with Elaine that I'm talking to now in the village of Hobart and you know, their argument is that they wanna expand, they wanna build development, they wanna have the tax base to, you know, have a better support for their communities given that they just want more money, I guess, you know? And so with, you know, tribal communities, it's a whole different concept of land management. They don't see it as economic like development they care for their land. Like Oneida bought some land just so that it wouldn't be developed, <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, there's these different concepts of what land is between the two groups, I think. So that can get a little bit confusing for one to understand, especially with Hobart, because they sit on the tribe's entire treaty land. It, it encompasses the village. I, I get it. You know, I mean, they're trying to build more. It, it was predominantly residential and they want to build more business development. I mean, I understand. But at the end of the day, it's not right, given, you know, the promises that were made to these tribes back in the day. And it needs to be honored and upheld. And so one other note I will say is that that Sarah, that Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance, you know, their whole mission is to terminate tribes. That's their whole thing. They're like, 
we're one citizen, like tribal nations shouldn't get these extra rights, like we should all be treated the same. And so there's just, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, thrown back and forth on each side. How common are disputes like these between Native communities and their non-Native neighbors? I mean, obviously, this was happening at the very beginning of our country. It has not gone away. But are these kind of disputes more common over the past few years? And how is the way that they're being carried out changing? Um, You know, that's a good question because, you know, with the research I've done, it's always been there. Um, And I think that a lot of times issues revolving Indian country, you know, the conflicts that they're fighting and, you know, the issues that they're involved in don't get as much attention. And so it's very new to a lot of people. And even to myself, like I, you know, talking to some of the experts about the walleye wars that I described earlier, they were like, oh yeah, it was like a really big thing. And it was just like, maybe it was in the nineties and I was like 10 years old when this happened, but, but still, I don't remember. I've never heard of it until I came here. And it was like, oh my God, you know, like this stuff is, is still happening, but it's not as overtly displayed as it was before in the past. It's more through like litigation now, it seems. With, um, for example, with Elaine and, you know, they're always in a battle. You know, something that I, I found in the research as well is that all of this was kind of strategic. I mean, this was a note that I, I need to explore a little bit further into, but, you know, they knew that, you know, border towns, Um, these issues were going to be perhaps detrimental to tribal communities, putting, you know, non-native residencies, like bordering them or on them, like towns are an issue in Indian country. And so, yeah, people experience a lot of racism um, and, you know, different things like that. In your reporting, what do you see as the biggest issue facing native communities right now? Oh gosh, I'm so like just embedded. I mean, I I even moved to Wisconsin, so I feel just so detached from everywhere else. So um, when I think about it now though, it's, you know, like racism is like a long lingering thing. Just that misunderstanding and not being able to see the issue from both sides is, it causes problems for tribal communities. You know, like the Oneida Nation, like it's just misconception, I feel is like the most detrimental issue that Indian country is facing right now. You know, you have a misconception of Indian casinos, like bringing wealth to these tribal communities. And, you know, you have Indians relying on federal government services and you have, you know, it's just an entire like snowball effect. of just like misconception that happens. And so I think that's the main issue. So you're just getting started in the next session of the Logan Nonfiction Program. But what do you hope to get out of it? Yeah, you know, um, I met with my a mentor of the program yesterday and even it was only an hour but I just was able to download so much information from her about the industry and about how my film can be more impactful I suppose like giving creative feedback constructive feedback and that was just an hour and so I'm like very excited to go into the Logan nonfiction program because we have a workshop set up with different industry folks and then we're able to go in and workshop our own projects as a cohort. And so that's what I'm excited for. I'm excited to build community, learn more about the industry. I know it's going to benefit Holder of the Sky, and so that's something that I'm really excited for. Sanavi Spoonhunter is a Logan Fellow, an American Indian reporter and filmmaker, and the director-producer of Holder of the Sky, which is currently in pre-production with an expected release in 2023. You can learn more about the film at the website for the Center for Independent Documentary, documentaries.org. 
Sanavi Spoonhunter, thanks so much for taking the time. Our next guests are using the Logan Nonfiction Program to develop their podcast, 50 Foot Woman. Jillian Farmer is an award-winning journalist and creative writer based in the southern coast of Oregon, and Cheryl Upshaw is the former managing editor of the Humboldt Sun, Lovelock Review Minor, and the Battle Mountain Bugle in Nevada. They met during a brief stint as co-workers in Oregon before the start of the coronavirus pandemic. With 50-Foot Woman, they hope to increase awareness of a number of rare conditions and diseases, starting with acromegaly, a pituitary disease in which the body produces too much growth hormone. Farmer herself was diagnosed with acromegaly in 2018. I was likely born with the disease and the brain tumor that comes with it. I wasn't diagnosed until I was 29 years old, and the diagnosis saved my life. It was about a centimeter away from what they said, making me just fall over. The tumor was so large, it was sitting on my uh, cerebral arteries, and it was sitting on my eyes. It was sitting on my eyes. It was actually starting to make me go blind. My symptoms were incredibly severe, but because the disease is such a slow grow, it's, uh, and I've said this on the podcast, uh, anyone who listens when we're finished will hear this, <laughs> but I've described it as kind of being like a frog in a, a boiling pan. You don't notice. And you start to explain away a lot of the symptoms because doctors have, you know, been treating the symptoms as symptoms, as just as they come up. I was lucky enough to have a dermatologist. <laughs> um, again, everyone has a different diagnosis journey. It's not every day that a dermatologist gets to diagnose a brain tumor and a very rare disease, but she saved my life. They were able to do brain surgery. Uh, it was transphenoidal surgery through my nose. The podcast, uh, the first season goes through uh, the emotional journey, the medical journey. We're going to be talking to medical professionals and we're also talking with other patients and how they've experienced their medical journey, both through the U.S. healthcare system and the Canadian healthcare system. So we're going to have a juxtaposing analysis of both because this is not only a very rare disease, but it has no cure. Every patient, they could see the tumor grow back. And the difficult thing about acromegaly is every inch you give the disease, you cannot get back. And so... <laughs> If like your levels get out of control, like your growth hormone uh, or your IGF-1, which are the big two that they look at, if they get out of control, for me last year, I had, you know, a herniated disc. <laughs> I had a few other things happen and now it's something I have to be careful about, you know, not happening again. Wow. If you don't mind my asking, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding things a little bit better. So let's go a little more into what the disease does in the body and how it works. Being a pituitary disease, it's all hormonal, right? Yeah, um, and this is going to be the like simplest version of it because I don't remember all of the specifics on like the scientific end. But essentially, um, your pituitary gland releases growth hormone, and then 
I believe as it passes through the liver, a secondary hormone called IGF-1 is then released. And that's just a normal thing that happens with everyone. Like there's a normal amount of IGF-1 in every person's body. But with a person who has acromegaly, the amount of growth hormone and IGF-1 in their body is uh, quite a bit higher. Um, Jillian mentions in our podcast that when she was diagnosed, a normal person's IGF-1 would be around 200. And for her, it was 1600. So, you know, eight times higher. Once you hit puberty, it stops doing that to the like long bones of your body and starts doing it to your face and to the soft tissues. One of the soft tissues that it can affect is your organs. So like your heart can be very dramatically affected and it can be fatal in that way. And this disease has also been known to cause colon cancer and breast cancer as well. And because it's the pituitary, I mean, that is the master gland that affects your entire body. And so if something goes wrong with it to this degree, it affects your entire body. And after my diagnosis, my doctors uh, put me through a battery of tests to see exactly how affected I was uh, and to see if there was anything else that needed emergency attention, like, you know, potential heart disease, like an enlarged heart. Thankfully, that was not something I had to deal with, but other patients do. For my case and for the case of, of many acro patients, but not necessarily all, is the tumor itself can produce growth hormone too. (laughs) And so you've got this big mass in your brain producing even more growth hormone. And so that's why it's so important for them to cut that out as well as the size of the tumor. The emergent part of it is also getting your levels under control. So it stops affecting your body. You mentioned earlier that acromegaly is hard to diagnose because the symptoms can creep up on you. What are the early signs of acromegaly? In children, because I had gigantism as a child, and um, but I'm only 6'1". Now, we will talk about why that I am not taller <laughs> on our podcast. It's very complicated. But in children, they grow very fast. Just for example, when I was in third grade, I was actually as tall, if not a little taller than my teacher, who was about five feet tall. One thing I also had as a child, which is something that adults with acromegaly need to look for, as well, if they're not diagnosed, are really like swollen hands. Um, my family called them like fleshy hands. <laughs> and like they're the soft tissues, they swell with this disease. And so your face can get really puffy. Your body just gets really swollen. That's what led to my herniated disc last year. Another common one is your teeth will start to move. Me, for example, I had perfectly straight teeth they're crooked now. (laughs) Um, But a lot of patients actually get a gap in their front teeth or their bottom teeth. Another common one is the jaw. It will make the growth plates in jaws lengthen and that'll make the jaw like protrude. Unfortunately, it does disfigure you. It does change your face. I remember looking in the mirror thinking, you know, I don't look, (laughs) I don't look the same. (laughs) And as an adult, you don't see that often. (laughs) You don't have that issue. Like my mom, um, she stopped me at one point and she just kind of grabbed me and looked at me and said, you look different. You look different. And so, I mean, that's a symptom. But one of my common symptoms that I had early on was skin issues. I got really big cysts. um, And that's what eventually led me to be diagnosed by my dermatologist. And so you've decided to make this podcast on your story here. What are you learning from speaking with other patients and medical professionals? 
Yeah, we've already been able to speak with a woman in the United States who has become a huge advocate for bringing awareness to the disease. And her name is Jill Sisko. Jill Sisko is a really fascinating person to talk to in that, um, in addition to being a patient, she spends a lot of time talking to both doctors and other patients. A lot of what she does is bringing people together to discuss the disease. And I think that's a big thing that we've kind of been learning because it is so rare finding a community of like-minded and people who are suffering the same things is really valuable because no one else gets it. I still haven't met an acromegaly patient except, you know, through our support group (laughs) on Facebook. And the woman we spoke with in Canada, she talks about this as well, is when she was able to meet her first acro patient, yeah, you meet people who, who get it. And it's a difficult disease to understand. It's most people can only identify it through thinking of celebrities that have it, such as Andre the Giant and the actor who played Lurch. For a woman with this disease, like you can't really look to uh, like a celebrity who has it. And so I went on a journey after being diagnosed of trying to find a woman with this disease because a lot of the symptoms are not flattering. They're often called by the medical world as like coarse features. As a woman, I really wanted to talk with other women about this and some other, you know, like issues that I had to face, things that can be embarrassing. And finding that support group was invaluable. And not only that, but after I found that group, Jill actually pointed me to a women's only acro support group. And that provides a really safe space for women with this disease to talk about this disease and how it impacts, you know, some more embarrassing topics (laughs) and uh, relationships. And there's also a support group for men with this disease to provide them a safe space to do the same. You might have asked us, like, how are you doing now? I am doing a lot better now. (laughs) And of course, like, there are some things that the disease had done to me back in 2018, you know, and up to 2018 that we're still dealing with, like issues with my jaw. I was told, you know, recently in like the last month that I've got arthritis of the jaw (laughs) and it's been giving me migraines and and so they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. I'm on treatment. I will be on treatment for the rest of my life uh, to keep it under control. That is okay. Like you get used to it and you're able to function a normal life and have like a normal lifespan <laughs> um, so long as the disease is kept under control. But right now I am probably the healthiest I've been. I think a good scope of when I say that <laughs> is I've had one doctor say to me, because I was likely born with a tumor, I don't even know what being healthy feels like. And so for me to say, I feel feel good, like, yes, I do feel good <laughs> for a no- normal person. I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> but for me, I am doing very well right now. And to that point, part of the reason we want to do this and help create awareness around acromegaly and create awareness around the U.S. healthcare system is despite the fact that that tumor is gone, she still has symptoms, she still needs care. And uh, the U.S. healthcare system and insurance companies in particular have made it really difficult for her to receive that care. So that actually does lead into one of my next questions. So like, what does that treatment and monitoring look like? And as you're getting treatment and speaking with others, what are some of the differences you're noticing between having to navigate that in the U.S. versus in other countries? 
Uh, one of the big ones is access to treatment. Like I, I mentioned, some of these treatments are chemotherapies that treat, you know, carcinoid tumors of the small intestine, for example. I'm on one of those on a low dose. And that treatment I get every six weeks. And that treatment last I heard was about $37,000 a dose. Uh, last year, I, I <laughs> it was a bumpy journey uh, keeping insurance due to many different reasons. And getting consistent treatment was difficult. When it was, I got a steady insurance and things were approved, I had to get this treatment through a specialty pharmacy because I live remotely. And that's something we discuss also in the podcast is how living remote uh, can affect treatment as well. But dealing with the specialty pharmacy, trying to get the first order, the copay was, I believe, if I'm remembering this right, about $3,000. And they were telling me that that's a copay I would have had to pay every dose. They didn't ask my financial situation. They just said, you can't afford it. <laughs> oh, we can't fill this unless you have copay assistance. And to somebody who has a incurable, very rare disease, that was devastating. Uh, and my husband and I had to have a very serious conversation if I would even have to or, or, or could get treatment, what that could mean. Um, because in past experience, if I don't have treatment, say, for two months, my levels could get out of, out of control and I'll, you know, who knows what could happen. It's kind of like a Russian roulette game. You don't know what the disease will do next to the body and how it could end you up in the ER or give you, you know, something else you can't roll back, something else that will then have to be addressed by specialists. And so thankfully, my doctors, though, are very aware of all of this. And they coordinated with a copay assistance program that they do for, I think, many, if not all of the ACRA patients that they treat. And that has been taken care of. And without that copay assistance, I would not be able to afford my treatment. As it is, I meet my out-of-pocket max deductible every year, <laughs> usually in January. <laughs> but then in comparison, uh, Cheryl, if you want to tell her about what we've learned from um, who we interviewed in Canada... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the woman that we spoke to in Canada, one of the things that she told us was, um, and it kind of blew my mind, she has a nurse that just drops by her house, I think it's once a week, to give her her treatment. Um, that's not an additional cost for her. It's just something that's provided because she also lives remotely. Like she's not in a city. She's a couple hours out, I think. So there's that. And it's not that Canadian healthcare is perfect, as she explained to us. It's not that she doesn't have to pay anything, but it's not as devastating to her. No one would ever say to her, uh, give us $37,000 per month or per six weeks to get care. The $3,000 copay per dose. <clears throat> that was not something yeah. that she faced either. No, she didn't have to worry about that. Uh, there is private insurance in Canada. There are things like that she does have to worry about and work with, but uh, basically they work with the drug companies directly to make it a lot more affordable. Um, and some people, she said, some of the patients that she's worked with, they don't have to pay anything, which is not something that we're hearing from American patients. No. And it's very interesting, like in the support group, um, a lot of patients in the United States go there seeking you know, advice on how to deal with insurance or other issues caused by the American healthcare system. And 
patients internationally express amazement sometimes because they don't face the same issues. Well, I feel like there's so many other things that I could ask, but we are running a little bit low on time. So I'm just going to have one more question for you. So you're wrapping up your time with the Logan nonfiction program. How has that experience been? It's been a, a very fun, very intense uh, fellowship and working with Cheryl has, I mean, I wouldn't have uh, the interest in telling this story alone. It's a very difficult story and to have a partner help navigate some of these more difficult conversations of, you know, facing death, dealing and thinking of death as an ACRA patient and dealing with the potential hereditary aspect of this and, and raising awareness for a disease people don't know about, um, that people in the medical world are very interested in also learning more about. I have a great partner in doing this. Hopefully our, our goal is it's going to make an impact. Jillian Farmer and Cheryl Upshaw are the producers of the podcast 50 Foot Woman, which is still in production. You can learn more about the project and some of the other Logan Fellows at logannonfiction.org. Jillian Farmer and Cheryl Upshaw, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you for listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. That theme underneath me right now, that's Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. The show is produced by me, Jesse King, and our executive producer is Dr. Ellen Shartok. A big thanks to the folks at the Logan Nonfiction Program, Sanabi Spoonhunter, Jillian Farmer, and Cheryl Upshaw for contributing to this week's episode. You can learn more about our guests at logannonfiction.org and more about 51% at wamcpodcast.org. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool Somewhere along the way At night and on the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool No electricity Hot rain on the concrete Sweet Take it.